the one that I was thinking of is uh, North and when you go up Division Street, um, yeah, past the four hundred one. Oh, kind of okay. out Montreal, That's... out Montreal Street, like the yeah. the sketchy area of Kingston. Um, yeah, yeah, the Heights. That's that's where I grew up. Yeah, oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's <Wow>. okay. <laughs> that's it. Like, we can cut that out. Don't worry. <laughs> we can cut that. Out. Um, but in all cases, yeah, I was the limestone joke was just that Kingston is known as the the limestone city, right? Yeah, totally, totally. Um, so, yeah. Welcome to Not Yet a Doctor, the podcast where we get down and dirty and talk a lot about ourselves. Uh, my name is Alistair, and I have my PhD in analytical chemistry from Queen's University. My name is Om, and I'm getting my PhD from McGill University. And my name is Sienna, and I'm also getting my PhD in neuroscience from McGill University. And we are your PhD three. Yeah, transition. <laughs> In transition. Um, so, welcome, guys. Glad to have you around the microphones again. Thank um, you. Today is actually my last episode of season three. So, um, I thought it's been a really fun season. I didn't think I'd actually get this far. And um, I have an exciting episode planned. So, I hope you guys are excited to. I'm excited. Along I'm, I'm suspicious about what it, I think I might know what it's about, but I'm <laughs> going to wait and see. Well, I won't hold you in suspense for very okay. long. Um, I thought I'd round out this season and talk a little bit about myself. So I knew it. <laughs> today, we're going to discuss uh, what I did for my PhD research. And specifically, Ooh. I want to walk you through one of the papers um, that I published called Continuous Online Leaching System Coupled with Inductively Coupled Plasma Mass Spectrometry for Assessment of Chromium, Arsenic, Cadmium, Antimony, and Lead in Soils. And this was Ooh. published back in November of 2021 in Atomic Spectroscopy. Congrats. So, thank you. We love a published <laughs> king. Yes. <laughs> um, I know, Sienna, I've probably talked to you about my research a fair amount, and on maybe a couple of times I've briefly touched on it, but I thought, like, today would be cool, especially for you guys and also for the listeners, um, to go through what I actually did for my PhD. And I yeah. hope by the end of it, you'll be able to appreciate my niche of chemistry, um, what actually kind of we do in analytical chemistry, or at least in my field of analytical chemistry, and uh, briefly what is contained in my 285-page thesis. <laughs> so let's dive in. Um, when I mention soil contamination and talk about like contaminated soils, what do you, what comes to mind? What do you guys think about? Arsenic and lead mainly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, lead for me. Sometimes I think mercury. Maybe mm -hmm. that's a crazy one. Yeah. Okay, so you guys think about like inorganic contaminants. I know I kind of like hinted at this with the title of the yeah. paper, but like, because soils can be contaminated by a lot of stuff, right? Yeah. I guess. Pesticides, uh, plastics oh, even can be considered contaminants. True. Aren't um, those also inorganic? Um. Yeah, but they're like larger... <laughs> True. When we true, talk true. about microplastics, I guess we could talk about microplastics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so these contaminants can come from many different places, many sources. Uh, one of the biggest ones in Canada and the U.S. is historical industries. Mm -hmm. So um, 
tanneries and pulp and paper mills and even like current industries yeah. um, can contaminate soils. Have you ever Tailings heard ponds. of the movie Tailings <laughs> Ponds or Big One? Mine, mine operations definitely um, mm-hmm. cause a lot of contamination um, or historically have caused a lot of contamination and currently are heavily regulated so they don't cause contamination. Um, but have you guys ever heard of the movie Aaron Brockovich? I've heard. I haven't watched. The movie? Mm-hmm. Well, so, no. I mean, it, she's a real person. Aaron Brockovich is a real yeah. person. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know about Aaron Brockovich? I'm going to say no. I'm going to be honest. No. I, I, the name is familiar and I'm certain I've read about her, but like, I don't remember why. Okay. Well, I think in, in preparing this episode, I realized that this would make a great like movie review episode. So maybe as a bonus episode or something, we'll have to do a movie review of the movie of Aaron Brockovich. But, um, Aaron Brockovich is a movie with Julia Roberts that profiles the real life person, Aaron Brockovich, who discovered and, um, took to court a large gas company in California back in the 60s, I want to say. That's a mm-hmm. shot in the dark. We'll cut that out if that's wrong. Um, <laughs> she took a big gas company to court um, because of hexavalent chromium contamination in the water supply in Hinkley, California. So okay. anyway, it's, it's a really interesting story and kind of is about contamination and um, sort of what we're going to be talking about today, except we're talking about soil contamination, not water contamination. And so, like you guys mentioned, there's lots of uh, contaminants that these industries can uh, pollute with, uh, chromium, arsenic, lead, and these are all concerning. I mean, you probably know this as well, but they're very concerning because uh, they can all cause serious adverse health effects, neurological Mm -hmm. degeneration, cancer. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these are not um, innocuous elements that we just kind of don't care about we care about them a lot because they cause Mm -hmm. bad things for our health and i I think it's also important uh when i talk about my research it's really important to recognize that many contaminated lands in canada and in the u.s are on indigenous reserves or treaty territory and so this impacts the health of an already vulnerable population and so Mm -hmm. soil contamination impacts many people um and it's super important that we research it and look into it and mitigate those risks. Um, when we look at people that are living or working on contaminated lands, we really focus in on children. Can you think of why we might care particularly about children? I have a thought, a developmental uh, potential or issues that might happen. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's mm-hmm. a big one. And they're also, mm-hmm. when we talk about Sienna, did you have an answer? Did you have a? Um, I was going to say, I feel like for a lot of these things, um, exposure can last a lifetime, right? So, like, mm-hmm. the earlier you're exposed, the longer it lasts. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, I, I would imagine it's kind of like a nuclear testing in that, like, the levels of radioactive carbon that is in the air when you're born determine the levels of radioactive carbon in your body for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? So, I imagine it's kind of similar. But I also agree with Om that also then the impacts on development would also be quite concerning. Yeah, totally. And also um, children are smaller. And when we talk about the um, potential Mm. effects of toxicity, like when we talk about toxicity, it's in terms of milligrams per kilogram of body weight. So if you're talking about smaller little little bibs, then uh, toxins are going to have more of an effect. But also, yeah, lifetime effects and uh, developmental issues are big ones as well. Mm Um, and 
So an interesting thing when I started my research, an interesting thing I learned that I kind of, whenever I talk about my research to anyone I, I mention, is that we all eat dirt every day. We incidentally <laughs> ingest dirt every day. You're incidentally yep. ingesting it today. I'm going to get some today. Um, and that When just I was a kid, from... it was not incidental, though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, I'm making pies. <laughs> Did you eat those pies? I'm curious. Did you? I, I ate dirt. Uh, I straight up ate dirt. Yeah, yeah I was, my parents let me outside by myself for too long, and <laughs> they stopped. There was one yeah. garden at my mom's friend's house that I was particularly, I, I enjoyed the dirt of. Really? Just go out and eat handfuls of dirt, yeah. Interesting. It's um, And now here I am. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's really interesting. Um, it wasn't specifically part of my research, but like tangentially, I looked into what's called pika, which is the ingestion of soils by children, mm-hmm. and... It's a really interesting and I think kind of under-researched phenomenon because, yeah, kids, not all kids, but many kids enjoy, like, eat dirt. And it's, yeah. it's, I think it's thought to be linked to nutrient deficiency, but there's not any conclusive evidence on that. So anyway, it's, yeah. Curious. Intentional ingestion is interesting and I think deserves more research. Mm-hmm. Um, but regardless, we're all incidentally ingesting dirt. And mm. kids... So our high-risk group of children are actually <laughs> incidentally ingesting it four times higher at a, at a rate that's four times higher than adults. Um, if we remove me from the analysis... <laughs> just skewing it. Sienna is an outlier and shouldn't be counted. <laughs> um, so my research particularly focused in on what happens to our bodies after we incidentally ingest these soils. Um, mm. Because it's important for contaminated places. If you're ingesting, incidentally, the soils on contaminated lands, uh, that might not be good. So um, the incidental ingestion of soils does not mean that you're automatically going to get the effects of any inorganic elements in it. Um, there's two key concepts that I looked at in my research that play into how these elements are going to affect your body, and that's bioaccessibility and bioavailability. And these terms, as I learned over the course of my research, these terms are used in a lot of different fields to mean a lot of different things. Um, And I'm going to explain to them as they were uh, taught to me, and maybe you guys have opinions about my definitions. Uh, I know one of my reviewers had opinions about my definitions, but anyway. (laughs) They always um, do. (laughs) So... Um, bioaccessibility is the amount of a contaminant that is extracted from the soil by the saliva, the gastric, or the intestinal fluid, so the gastrointestinal mm-hmm. juices. Um, and then bioavailability is the amount that is actually absorbed up into the blood. Hmm. I have a little figure here. Aww. So you can see the bioaccessibility here in purple is what's like extracted out by the, in this case, the intestinal yeah. fluid. And then the bioavailability is it actually being absorbed up into the blood. Cool. That makes sense? I like yeah. this figure. Thank you. I made it myself. I'm very I proud know. of it. I know. I can tell. I put it in every presentation. It's very cute. Is there one metric over the other that, like, maybe you'll get into this later, but that tells you, or which one is more relevant, maybe is a question, or are they both super relevant? We will, we will chat about that okay. because it's a um, contentious, well, it's, it's, complicated as a lot of things are (laughs) Mm -hmm. um and also i should say for our listeners uh this figure will be up on our social media uh so go follow us on 
Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, not yet a DR, and you can follow along with this podcast to see these pretty pictures that I made. <laughs> so um, it is easier in a lab setting to measure the bioaccessibility in vitro because uh, bioavailability studies require in vivo measurements of mice yeah. or pigs. So you actually have to so I was measure the blood levels mm-hmm. of these animals. And so to your question, Om, it is expensive and time-consuming, um, and you have to do all these ethical things with working with animals, as I'm sure both of you are more familiar mm-hmm. with than me. <laughs> so we, we've developed, we being analytical chemists, like it wasn't just myself or my lab, um, we've developed in vitro methods to simulate this. And actually, I should say, and I put this in if my supervisor is listening, um, that to accurately represent bioavailability, studies actually look at the proportion of a contaminant that is in the bloodstream following ingestion, and then compare that to a positive control based on the toxicity reference value, or the studies that were used to develop what is a toxic level for that element. You compare the measurement in your case, in the blood of your animals, to what was done in that study. And that's called the percent relative bioavailability. Okay. So it's it's kind of to control for absorption factors and the toxicity reference value study being different than the soil you're looking at and all this kind of stuff. It, it controls for those factors. And so those are kind of the gold standard of looking at soil contamination and, and the availability of these toxic elements. But they need animals and stuff. Hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. So for our listeners, just to keep it clear, bioavailability is the amount absorbed. Bioaccessibility is the amount actually just extracted out of the soil by the gastrointestinal fluids. And so, as I mentioned, uh, there's a bunch of different bioaccessibility methods that have been developed. And over the course of my research, I learned that there are 13 distinct methods. So it's kind of it's kind of the wild west out there, if I'm being honest, for bioaccessibility, because some people use the CDM method, other people use the US EPA method, some people develop their own method, and then, you know, say that theirs is the best because of XYZ. So, it's, um, there's a lot of competing methods, um, mm-hmm. but one of the big things over the last 10 years, um, there's been a big push to validate methods, and basically, um, meet have have these methods meet certain criteria for the in vitro in vivo comparison so they'll run Mm -hmm. the lab method and then they'll run an animal method and they'll do a a nice correlation plot and say look we get the same results the the correlation um use our method because it's validated uh but even then there are like four or five validated methods and then there's competing interests on what validation means. Like, do you have a good linearity in R squared? But R squared is flawed, and so <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of discussion about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had many discussions about this with my supervisors and reviewers of papers, and yeah. So right. So after all these discussions, which one's the best? <laughs> well, I mean, you don't have to answer that <laughs> yeah, fair, fair enough um, I do have an opinion because in my research I looked at three methods um, two of which we're going to talk about today um, one of them is called the Unified Bioaccessibility Method or UBM so I'll be referring to it as the UBM and then there's also a glycine method that's used by Health Canada and the US EPA and so the glycine method 
is a relatively simple liquid extraction mm-hmm. where you take your soil, you put it in a buffered glycine solution at a pH of 1.5, so very acidic, kind of like the stomach, and then you rotate it end over end for an hour. And that is simulating gastric uh, mm-hmm. digestion. Peristalsis, right? Peristalsis, yes. Does our Except... food only go through our stomach for an hour? Um, I guess that, maybe. Mm, and then it spends a lot of time in our intestines. <laughs> and our intestines aren't as acidic. Yeah, it's representative of the time that uh, is spent it's in the gastric. stomach. Yeah, yeah. Another another key thing about these these methods is they're trying to simulate what's in the body, but then also, if they are validated, doesn't really matter. Because mm. you if, if you put the soil in water, shake it for 30 seconds, and you get the same results as an in vivo study, you can argue that it is validated and you get the same results. So... Mm-hmm. Look, it's a water-based extraction, which would be super simple and easy. And but I don't think you would get the same results if you did a water extraction. Yeah, considering all that, like, what kind of effects? Maybe you haven't looked into this, but like, does acid really have a big impact on like lead and chromium and arsenic? Like these kind of things. I imagine like those are more things to degrade proteins and like that's as a biochemist that's immediately but i think i think organic molecule breakdown right mm. but i never thought about it in terms of like metals and lead is there any thoughts towards that or does that have an impact um it's a good question uh so the acids don't tend to impact most inorganic elements mm-hmm. um arsenic is tricky when you're looking at organo arsenics organo arsenoids um because Arsenic comes in many forms. Some of them are yeah. attached to organic components or organic molecules, and those can break down and uh, change their speciation. Um, so that's a key thing when you're looking at speciation of elements. Okay, I have a comment and a super basic question. Yeah. So my comment is, I know lichens and bacteria use acids to break down rocks. So then I would think that the acid might break down the soil and make those elements more available or like leach out of the soil due to acidification of the rock-like components Mm -hmm. of the soil. Mm -hmm. But, and I guess thinking about it, I kind of know the answer to this question, but maybe you can comment on it a bit more broadly. What is soil and what's in it? Like, how do you get stuff out of it? Like, I don't really, how are, how is lead tied up in soil? What's holding on to the lead? Is it just sitting there surrounded by organic and inorganic other matter? What creates a soil particle? What is a soil? To answer your question, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What is soil? Yes. (laughs) so yeah, you're, you're right. Soil is made up of, of many different things. There are organic components. Um, not all soils are equal. Um, <laughs> just, I mean, like, but, you know. No, I get it. Soil is, yeah. Uh, as part of my research, I did I did a stint at the geological survey in, in England. And so maybe some of my friends there, if they listen to the podcast, will have a much better answer as geologists. But um, soil primarily is made up of the rocks that make up the ground that you are on, if that makes sense. Um, and mm-hmm. so it, it's small particles of rocks and um, broken down organic matter. Um, in terms of elements, different rocks can contain different concentrations of elements. Um, mm-hmm. And that gives a background level. For instance, there is very there are very high levels of arsenic in the northern areas of Canada, 
because the natural geology just has high levels of arsenic in the soil. Mm. And that's actually really important when you go in to do remediation because you don't actually want to get rid of all the arsenic in those soils because then you'd just be cleaning up the entire Arctic. So you have to actually get it to a background level or lower. And mm-hmm. there's regulations and ways to do that and all sorts of stuff um, in the risk assessment yeah. process. You're but, trying not to clean up a mess that you didn't actually make. Exactly, exactly. Well, and in a lot of cases, this work is done by governments and regulatory bodies after the industries have packed up and left. So... Yeah. Right. You're trying not to clean up a mess that somebody else didn't make. <laughs> yes, exactly. Try not to clean up the Earth's mess. You're trying to clean up other people's mess. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, that, uh, did that answer your question? Okay. Soil, soil is made up of a lot of things, uh, mm-hmm. and, but yeah, the, the gastric, the, the low pH will cause, uh, a better extraction of the elements, generally. This is another dumb question. We can cut this out after. Mm-hmm. Has anyone ever invented a method of doing this where they take it and put it in, like, a stomach like bag like material with high acid and shake it around and then like just put it through a bunch of like wrinkly pipes that are like at a a little bit of a higher ph like a five for like eight hours and then push it out the other end yes they are (laughs) there are like like i said there's a bunch of different methods one of them that i saw i think it was called the rbalp r-b-a-l-p method and it uses peristalsis bags in oh water. Oh, God, yes. And, like, mas- had a massaging mechanism. Like, it was <laughs> probably the best simulator of the gastrointestinal tract. Love that for them. I think it's validated. Mm-hmm. But then also this glycine method is validated. So, like, do you want to go the super complicated peristalsis bag method? Or do you want to just shake it for an hour in a tube? Like, I have get... another quick question. Uh-huh. Do people ever just look at poop what <laughs> like what That's like if you know what people are eating would you ever just ask them for their poop to see how much come it came out yeah or urine <laughs> or urine <laughs> but that that would have to go through your bloodstream so that's actually also a really good idea yeah 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 i don't i don't know i think when we, analytical when we chemists look... we might have stumbled upon something well i think i think i think at the end of the day it's just a, a metric of like when where do you want to look at it indirectly yeah. which is i guess through poop and pee or more directly which is straight through the in, an intestine like system right <laughs> I, I guess i don't know <laughs> well, and, and this stuff like these bioaccessibility methods are done before people even are living on these lands it's 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 part of an assessment to see is it risky or is like is a risk Mm -hmm. if someone lives there when people are actually living on contaminated lands there are uh, surveys done and usually you do blood samples and maybe urine and stool samples i'm not sure i didn't do any of that research but there are that that does happen so Mm -hmm. uh yeah probably to answer that question um so the other method we're going to talk about today is the ubm it's a sequential extraction that simulates the stomach and the intestinal conditions um, with enzymes and salts and lots of other delicious ingredients. Mm. Uh, I got to make it up a few times, and it has a lot of different uh, components to it. Um, 
and the soils are rotated for an hour in the stomach and then uh, four hours in the artificial intestinal fluid. And so these at 37 degrees Celsius at 37 degrees <laughs> Celsius in a water bath or incubator. Nice. So yes, got to simulate the human conditions as best as we can. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these rotate. So in the UBM, it rotates for five hours. And then this is even before we look at what elements have been extracted. And so, so to look at what elements have been extracted, we take out the liquid and we run it on a system usually called ICPMS, inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometry. And I could do a whole episode on ICPMS, and I know I keep teasing that I could do a whole episode on ICPMS, um, and I'm just going to keep teasing until the end of time because I'm not doing an episode <laughs> on ICPMS today. Um, the short version is that a hot argon plasma, go check out our episode on plasmas if you want to know more about what plasmas are, but uh, the hot argon plasma breaks up the extracted liquid and accurately determines what elements were in the original solution, and then you can see precisely from that, how much arsenic, lead, chromium, or whatever else was bioaccessible from the soil and extracted mm-hmm. by the fluids. So that is, in a nutshell, how we how bioaccessibility methods work, and two, that I looked at in my research. Um, but the main component of my research was developing and refining a method for coupling the bioaccessibility extraction to ICPMS for a sort of online analysis. And so this was a system that we developed in our lab uh, to been developed a number of years ago, but I was working on making it better and um, comparing it to these methods. And so since I was doing a lot of this work and I needed a snappy quick name, um, I called it the column, the C-O-L-M, short for Continuous Online Leaching Method. So when I talk about the column, it's this little system. And I have another image here that I'm gonna share with you. So in the column, we have our sample in a mini column um, packed in there uh, and submerged in a water bath at 37 degrees Celsius. And mm-hmm. then with a pump, we actually pump the artificial saliva, gastric and intestinal through the sample and then mm-hmm. send it right onto the inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometer. And cool. that way we can see what elements are um, extracted out from the soil uh, dynamically, we can see it in real time. That's super cool. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a neat little system. There's definitely there definitely were and have been challenges with getting it working. One of the big things is soil is a very fine matrix, like it's it's very fine particles, mm-hmm. so it packs very tightly into these columns, and you can get uh, back pressure and like difficulty pumping yeah. the liquid through. So we actually had to um, go to a high pressure system. Uh, mm-hmm. that was part of my research, but, um, one of the big things with the column is that we get reduced analysis times because we're actually seeing when these things are extracting out. Um, we get some pretty unique extraction information like differential extraction, which I'll talk about in a bit. And there's also the possibility, uh, for multi-channel throughput. So you could have multiple of these stacked up and you just run them one at a time, um, for multi-sample analysis. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's a pretty cool system. And we uh, were able to directly compare this column to the US EPA's glycine method uh, and the UBM with no statistically significant difference between them. So this is the paper that I uh, was talking about. Um, Mm -hmm. When we ran glycine through the column uh, and ran a normal glycine method, the results were the same and the same was true with the UBM. So 
it's not, I hesitate to say that the, this column method is validated because we didn't do the bioavailability studies, but the glycine method and the USEPA method are validated methods. And so yeah. in comparing our setup to the validated methods, we achieved similar results, which was uh, pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And are these other methods, I guess this is what sounds interesting to me about yours is that you're seeing it like temporally, I guess, through time, right? Yeah. So you can see like the changes of bioavailability as things are being digested, which I'm guessing you can't do that with the other method. You can't, exactly. It's um, nice. Yeah, it's it's all just um, mishmashed into one um, yeah one bottle at the end. And so if a certain element comes out first, and then thirty minutes later another element is less readily available, um, then you, you can't see that with the batch methods. So it's mm-hmm. awesome. So you've effectively compared it to what's already validated and mm-hmm. added another metric that is unique to your your work, which is, that's phenomenal. Yeah, and I, I sort of touched on this earlier, but another big thing in the field um, of analytical chemistry, inorganic elements and soils and other things like food um, is the species of the element. So mm-hmm. uh, I mentioned arsenic, but also chromium. In, in Aaron Brockovich, it's a big thing. Chromium comes in two forms, hexavalent and trivalent. Trivalent isn't toxic, or not that we know of, and hexavalent chromium is uh, carcinogen. And so you really, you can look at how much chromium is in a piece of food or drinking water or something, but if you look at the speciation, you get more information because maybe you have a lot of chromium, but it's all in trivalent chromium and it actually is not harmful to humans. Um, With this online method, you can do speciation analysis of the bioaccessibility extracts. And so you can Mm -hmm. see what species are coming out of the soils, which you couldn't do in the batch methods because it just, again, it all just Mm -hmm. mixes together. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah. One other really cool thing that we get with inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometry is it doesn't just tell us like, ding, there's some lead, like, oh, there's, you know, five ppm of lead it actually can distinguish between the different isotopes of lead at different Mm -hmm. isotopes of all the elements. And so we can actually do isotopic analysis of these extracts. And so it's something that only a few people in our lab, when I was doing my research, had looked into. Um, But because the column's online, the extracted elements can actually be seen in real time, as you said as they leave the soils. And so we can get these really interesting profiles. I just need to pull that up. We can get these really interesting profiles of the extracts that give us a lot of information about the soil's bioaccessibility. Mm -hmm. And so you can see, we're looking at chromium, arsenic, strontium, and lead down here at the bottom are the different elements. Mm -hmm. And we're looking at two isotopes of chromium, 52 and 53. and the three isotopes of lead, 206, 207, and 208. Yeah. And you can see, as we're running the online system, we start running the saliva through, and there's a big peak of the elements uh, extracting out of the soil, and then it kind of goes down to a baseline, and then we start extracting with the gastric, and it's an even higher peak, and that's generally 
the case because gastric mm-hmm. is more acidic. We get that extraction of the elements. And then the intestinal is here at the end. And so we can see not only which of the uh, phases or which of the uh, fluids the elements are coming out into, but also the isotopes of those elements. Very cool. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. It's pretty neat. And so uh, in my research and also in a few previous works in our group, we've actually been able to identify different isotopes of lead um, in soil samples and also some food samples. And we could see that there was different, the different isotopes came out at different times, basically. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it's being used on rice and breads and even currently garden vegetables to look at the bioaccessibility of these soils. So, these lead isotopes, you mean? Oh yeah, the, these lead isotopes. So yeah, I hope that uh, this has given you an interesting glimpse into what I actually did for my PhD, uh, mm-hmm. and I hope also that maybe it's even inspired some of our listeners to pursue research in uh, this area or on these important issues of land contamination and human health. Um, do you guys have any questions or anything? I have a lot of questions. Yeah, ask <laughs> so, your questions. Yeah. So for the samples that you guys, so it sounds like your goal, right, was to set up this column assay. We're going to call it that, uh, which is awesome. Um, but did you guys actually look at different soils in different areas and see, okay, now that we have it validated, what are the actual profiles of mm. different uh, land? Or is that something that's up and coming? That's, that's uh, kind of the next step. That's the next step mm-hmm. that is being done um by my friend Andre and his work. Um, and I actually don't know if I can talk about his research because it's with That's the government. <laughs> well, yeah. It's with the government. And when when we talk about contaminated lands and the government is, you know, looking at contamination, it's a very, not contentious, but like the public is very aware of, talk, like, how do I put this? We don't want to scare the public by saying like, oh, we're looking at the lands outside of Kingston and like, yeah. we're looking at like the plot of land right by your house. Uh, it might mm-hmm. have arsenic. Uh, we'll let you know in two years when <laughs> he finishes his PhD. Um, yeah. So obviously this is an example. He's not looking at lands in Kingston, but um, yeah. So anyway, Kingston is all limestone anyway. It's just, a, <laughs> it's just one giant rock, right? Actually, my supervisor <laughs> did say, cause we were talking about doing real soil samples. I just didn't mm-hmm. have the time to, I, so much of my research was focused on developing the method and then getting it compared to these validated methods. And so mm-hmm. there just wasn't the time to do real world analysis. But at one point we were having a meeting and she was like, you live, you live near this, like the crossroads in Kingston. I was like, oh no, it's, it's actually quite far away from my house. She's like, oh yeah, there's a lot of arsenic on that land. Like you could probably just like <laughs> pop the fence and scoop up some soil. And I was like, ah, first of all, I don't want to go there if it's contaminated. Second of yeah. all, Second. It's contaminated. How do I write that up what? in my methods? <laughs> You're gonna have to tell me where that cross street is later. <laughs> yeah. It's um for those yeah for those who don't know, I also grew up in Kingston. Yeah, so. yeah. that's it. Um, north of, I, I think I can say it because it's not. It's actually um, it's become public knowledge. But um, mm. uh, well, there's the Davis Tannery site, which is on a park. Um, I can't remember the name now. Battery Park. That's what. North. Oh, you know, bat- yeah, I do know Battery Park. It, not Battery Park. That's the other park. Um, oh. That's just another park in Kingston. I have like Any a personal anecdote about contaminated soils. Yeah. 
So where I'm from, Nelson, we're very close to a city called Trail, and Trail has long time had industry called Tech Kaminko. I know people who live in Trail, and the thing is, if you live in Trail and you have children, you get a free soil analysis mm. of your yard soil, and if they find high lead contamination, they redo your whole yard for you. Wow. Because of probably they don't want lawsuits slash they've already had legal action taken against them about contamination of the land in trail. And so interesting. that's what they do. Part of, I guess, remediation is they replace like four feet of dirt with not contaminated dirt. Yeah. Yeah. I know an- another um, interesting anecdote uh, that I learned about taking a risk assessment course is sometimes it's actually better to leave contaminants where they are. Um, mm. There was an example my professor used that was a former um, trapping site, and the way that they would preserve hides in back in ye old days was arsenic. So there were just literal drums of white arsenic just sitting left mm. up in the Arctic. And it was going to be more expensive and time-consuming and costly to get rid of that than yeah. just leave it. Because it's also in a very remote area. So they did a bunch of studies to see that it wasn't leaching into the soil further than where it was, or the groundwater, mm-hmm. and animals weren't getting at it. Um, but yeah, sometimes yeah. the solutions, like having every homeowner get a free soil sample done. If you have children. If you have children. Oh, sorry. Yes. If you have children. If you have young children. Because they're the high-risk group. It's, uh... Yeah, but I wonder where they put the dirt. This is a great question. Like, yeah, obviously they question. had to remove the dirt and take it somewhere, but where did they mm-hmm. put it? Yeah, what what do people do when they find these contaminants? Where did the dirt go? So like, we find question. out, okay, someone has, this dirt yeah. is highly bioavailable to a child. Okay. Has a lot of lead or something. <laughs> now what? Yeah. Aside from move it somewhere else. Exactly. That's where the remediation begins. And that yeah. is, yeah. That must it's... be very tough for certain elements. Um, it, it is tough for certain elements and it's expensive and, uh, well, I know another, like in my experience in Kingston, actually, um, Kingston, huge industrial city back at the, I guess, turn of the century. So there were rail yards, there were tanneries, there were all of the types of contaminating industries right on the water. And, um, Kingston is now undergoing a huge remediation effort of, the uh, soil of the bed of the inner harbor and so they're doing dredging and Mm. dredging is a process where you uh, basically wall off the area that you're dredging and then suck out all the soil with a big vacuum but it causes the soil to you know be kicked up and turn over mix and turn over and there's concerns that it could spill into the rest of the harbor Mm -hmm. there's it's very unlikely for that to happen. They take extreme precaution when dredging to prevent spillover of contaminated murky water into the clean yeah. water. Um, but I know this was right actually when I was defending my PhD, this was all kicking up. Um, a lot of the public was getting very upset about the dredging uh, yeah. or that the city was going to be doing this and stuff. And mm-hmm. uh, my supervisor was tangentially involved in one of the initial risk assessments for that area so it was kind Mm -hmm. of like 
in our in our wheelhouse, but not at all because the company that's doing it now has no affiliation with with them. But mm-hmm. yeah, wow. Um, so yeah, that's that was my research. Uh, I I'm glad you guys Congrats. enjoyed. It. I wanted thanks. Yeah, I wanted to um, I wanted to leave kind of finish off my last episode of season three before we do the quiz. I do have a quiz, but okay. I wanted to finish with a quote <laughs> that I actually put in my thesis. Um, because it kind of uh, was a guiding light throughout my PhD, and it's by a famed Canadian environmentalist, David Suzuki. So Mm -hmm. he says, Now there are some things in the world that we can't change. Gravity, the speed of light, entropy, the first and second laws of thermodynamics, and our biological nature that requires clean air, clean water, clean soil, clean energy, and biodiversity for our health and well-being. Protecting the biosphere should be our highest priority, or else we sicken and die. Other things, like capitalism, free enterprise, the economy, currency, the market, those are not forces of nature. We invented them. They are not immutable. We can change them. And I wow. think love that. Well done, Suzuki. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. I love David Suzuki. Yeah. He's a really great guy. Yeah. So, are you ready for a quiz about my PhD? <laughs> yes. <laughs> ready. Yeah. I've been preparing for this my whole life. <laughs> I just learned. Okay, right. <laughs> um, so before I jump into the first question, I need to hear your buzzers. Om, um, what is your buzzer sound? Oh, Lord. Uh, Limestone City. Limestone City. All right. I like that. That sounds like it should be like a city in like a cyberpunk or like freaking um, yeah. Fallout game, you know? Yeah. It's funny because Kix is like the polar opposite of that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Sienna, what's your buzzer sound? Mm. That's the leeching. Okay. Yeah, it also actually it sounds like that one method, the Arbelp method. So. <laughs> All right. So, question number 1. Do adults incidentally ingest more or less soil than children, and Lurp. by how much? Oh, Limestone City. Lurp. I heard. Okay. I heard Sienna first. I'm so okay. sorry. Um, it's okay. Yes, they do. No, sorry. Opposite. I was thinking about kids. No adults. It's over. Do not... no, I'm <laughs> <laughs> no. Just kidding. I said the wrong thing. Um, adults ingest less mm-hmm. by four times less. Correct. Yes, I'm gonna. I'm. You stumbled a little bit, but I'm going to give you the point on that one. All right. Thank question you. the second. What is bioavailability? Limestone City. Oh, I heard on. Okay. So there's accessibility and there's availability, right? Mm-hmm. And my understanding is uh, availability is how much gets into the blood. Yes. Very good. Yeah. Wonderful. Nice. Uh, next question. What does column stand for? Warp. Sienna. Continuous online leaching method yes well done oh, wow. yes. correct <laughs> all right final question uh this could this could tie it up how many pages was my thesis document i'm so city 285 Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> I was... that's good i did not re- i was you know like two something you know what's wild alistair what? my thesis is currently the exact same amount of pages really yeah that's... which is why when you said it i was like what <laughs> that's, that's so oh funny my God. <laughs> Yeah, it, um, I will. I will say it's two eighty five, including like the title page, the table of contents and stuff. Because like all of it, the, you have the the front matter, the word doc, count. page counter, the, you yeah, got exactly. appendix. You got yeah. you got all oh, the stuff I, in there. I had a lot of appendices. <laughs> yeah. All of yeah. oh god, all of my tables. Um, exactly. Yeah. So 
thank you very much for listening to my final episode of season three. Listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this season. I hope you enjoyed hearing about my research. And mm -hmm. uh, please give us a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NotYetADR. You can also email us any questions or episode suggestions, or if you just want to get in touch, at phd32b at gmail.com. That's phd32b at gmail.com. Just going to quickly list my uh, sources here. We had <laughs> continuous online leaching system coupled with inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometry for assessment of chromium, arsenic, cadmium, antimony, and lead in soils by A. Kirolf, M. Watts, I. Coach, and D. Boschman, which was in atomic spectroscopy. And also, um, I touched on some research that is in source apportionment of bioaccessible lead in soil reference materials using continuous online leaching method and inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometry. Never was brief in my PhD. By A. Kirolf, <laughs> I. Coach, and D. Boschman, which was in Analytica Chimica Acta in January. And also, my thesis, obviously, but it hasn't been published yet. So, you, you can't find that quite yet. <laughs> um, Thank you for teaching us all about your research. Yes, mm -hmm. thank you for listening. I am Alistair. I'm Om. And I'm Sienna. Thank you for sticking with us through season three. Yeah, go incidentally yeah. ingest some non-toxic soil. Yes. That's advice from our favorite guy. Yeah. Bye. <laughs>